Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Lieutenant Colonel Jane Hunter. Jane served in the British Army for 30 years. An educator by trade, she dedicated her life to the development of others. She was driven by passion, devotion and service, earning the respect of and inspiring a generation. Passionate about leadership, Jane was a close friend and ally of the Centre of Armed Leadership. She joined us for the recording of this podcast just three days before her passing. Rest in peace, our friend. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp, Head of the Centre for Armour Leadership. It is my absolute privilege to introduce our guest today, Lord Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Born in 1956 in London, the most reverend Justin Welby was educated at Eton College and Trinity College, Cambridge, where he studied history and law. For 11 years, five in Paris and six in London, he worked in the oil industry, becoming group treasurer of a large British exploration and production company. In 1989, after sensing a calling from God, Archbishop Justin stood down from industry to train for ordination. He took a theology degree at St. John's College, Durham, in which he focused on ethics, particularly in business. For 30 years, his ministry has blended deep devotion to parish communities with church work around the world especially in areas of conflict. On 9th of November, 2012, Archbishop Justin was announced as the 105th Archbishop of the See of Canterbury and was enthroned at Canterbury Cathedral on the 21st of March, 2013. Uh, Archbishop, it's an absolute pleasure to have you join us on the Central Armour podcast this morning. Thank you so much for taking your taking time out your your diary to join us i really really do appreciate it thank you it's it's a real privilege to be with you so thank you thank you very much indeed great i, I wonder um it's, it's become a bit of a uh, a customary now i suppose for our podcast to to start with a couple of questions that really get to know the individual our guest um and and what shaped them as the person they are today or indeed the leader they are today and i wonder if we could do the same um, please. So looking back at your formative years, um, you've been quite open about uh, some of your experiences through through childhood and early adulthood. Um, and in, a, in an article you wrote for the Daily Telegraph, you described um, a certain period of your life then as, as messy. Uh, what did you take from this period of your life and how did those early days shape you as the leader you are today? I think uh, what I took from them was a constant sense of provisionality. You can't predict the future you can't take for granted that everything will always go well and there are different ways of responding to that but in i think in terms of leadership it gives me an instinctive feeling that you need to know what will happen if things go wrong i'm a bit more eeyore than that in my personality so i would normally think what will happen when things go wrong but for me that sense of uh, the messiness of life means that you can over plan as well as under plan. So would you say that's given you an element of resilience? Uh, it's certainly given me an element of resilience and an element of confidence that at the end of at the end of all things, well certainly you would expect me to say this in my job, but at the end of all things, God brings the best out of the worst situations. 
and, and sticking with again your formative years, you attended two iconic uh, academic institutions in Eton College and Cambridge University. How important is, is study and education for you now in your in your life now, but also in creating the foundations for you as a leader? I think where I really benefited from both those institutions was first of all in a sort of can-do approach, but even more importantly was in learning how to think rather than what to think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Learning how to, uh, being taught by people who would question assumptions the whole time. Didn't just say, well, this, I I was a historian at I was a lawyer and then a historian. Uh, the law faculty and I mutually decided it wasn't my calling. And uh, <laughs> in their case, very they felt very emphatic about that. Um, but um, history remains one of my passions. And it's very easy to learn history by rote. But to learn to interpret, to learn to question, to think, to put yourself in the place of people... My best teachers were those who taught me that kind of thing. Uh, would you say you've always been a man of, of faith? Were, were you destined? No, not at all. Um, I, uh, between leaving Eton and going to Cambridge in those days, there was a nine month gap, and I went and taught in a bush school in, uh, in Kenya, about 70 miles north of Nairobi in the foothills of Bank, Kenya and very primitive conditions, very rough conditions. And one of the things that really struck me there, it was on the site of an old British internment camp from the colonial days, the internment, uh, the days of interning Mama suspects. Uh, This was in 1974. And the head teacher had been interned there. And I found in him someone for whom faith was alive and meant that even having been interned there, there was no sense of bitterness. There was a real sense of forgiveness. And it was from there that faith began to grow, from his extraordinary example, that faith began to grow in my own mind and heart. And so moving on from university then, and, and around the period you're describing now, you then went off to, to join the corporate world in the oil industry. and you had a, I did indeed. A very successful career that spanned, I believe, over a, over a decade there. So, so what made you move from the corporate world into, into the church? Kicking and screaming (laughs) with an overwhelming sense that God was calling and trying to find any alternative thing to do. So at my final interview, and I really don't commend this as an interview tactic, the final interview with the bishop after two years of process, the bishop said, why do you want to get ordained? And I said, I don't. So he said, what are you doing here? And, you know, implication, wasting my time. And I uh, wasting his time. And uh, I said, well, I just can't get away from it. He said, what will you do if we turn you down? I said, go back to London, take my wife out to the best meal I can afford to celebrate. And, uh, hey, <laughs> I don't recommend I mean, it as an interview technique, but, <laughs> but here <it> I am. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and, and so was that transition into the church, was that, or certainly your, uh, your growing faith, was, was that an evolution then? It wasn't a particular moment in time necessarily. Was it an evolution into, into that there, career path? There was a very clear moment where I had a sense of the call of God. 
and then after that it was two years of hard thinking and and consideration with the family with my wife uh you know it hadn't quite anticipated that <laughs> she thought she'd married no company executive on a good salary <laughs> So if we can talk, clearly you've got a huge amount of leadership experience now um, through the church, but, but obviously in the corporate world before that, what was leadership in the, in the private sector like and how, how does your leadership style differ now, if it does? I think it laid the foundations in one place where I worked of seeing some very bad leadership without a sense of common vision and recognizing the need to draw people together into a common vision. I think that's more and more true. I suspect, I've never served in the armed forces, but I suspect even in the army with a strong hierarchy, if you want people to work really well, they have, to, I mean, it comes in Slim's great book, doesn't it, on de- defeat into victory. The moral, the spiritual component of leadership is they have to believe that what they're doing is for a good cause and that they are well-led. And I saw the opposite of that. And in one place I worked, and then the next company I went to, I found a leadership style where the leader was sufficiently confident to want to be challenged the whole time. And so you were never frightened of saying, no, I don't agree with you. Now that set a very good basis And I think in the Church of England and in the church generally, the best leaders are those who exhibit servant leadership. Uh, It's very easy to slip into a mode of deference and hierarchy. Mm. Um, But my staff here, I mean, I experienced it this morning. I expressed myself quite forcefully this morning about something. And the comms director said, no, you're wrong on that. Now, you know, she's 30 years 30 years different in age she's very much junior but I was really pleased that she said no you're wrong on that and moreover she was right that I was wrong (laughs) and and do you think on challenge it's an interesting subject do you think the church has a strong challenge culture no we're trying to introduce it more and more but I think it's something that if if necessary you introduce artificially we have um 15-minute debates. I had one last week on a really difficult decision. And we got the senior team together and I said, okay, so-and-so, you put the case for this and -and so-and-so, you put the case against. Then we'll discuss it for, you each do that in um, three or four minutes. We'll discuss it for seven or eight minutes. And in in 15 minutes, I'll make up my mind. And there was a really vigorous discussion, very clear, and it just enabled things to clarify for me. Now, I may still have made a decision that was wrong. It's still my decision. I take responsibility. I'm not saying it's going to be their fault. But challenge is indispensable to good leadership. Mm. Uh, Kennedy, there's a fascinating story. Uh, President Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, when he became president in 1960, I think it was, he was, it was uh, 61, January 61, very quickly he was faced with the Bay of Pigs invasion with his armed forces saying he must invade Cuba, support uh, Cuban rebels in invading Cuba to overthrow Castro. It was a catastrophe. 
there were more than a thousand prisoners taken. The whole thing was was terribly badly done. When it came to the Cuba crisis uh, over the missiles and nuclear missiles, 18 months later, he asked someone in his cabinet, a senior member of his cabinet, to head the group that challenged every bit of advice systematically. And that meant he heard both sides very, very clearly. And I just don't think that good leadership is possible on the basis of individual genius. I totally agree. I mean, there's a number of um, areas, a number of themes that you've you brought up there that speak right to the heart of British Army leadership today. The importance of challenge, and I think we've got our own challenges with our hierarchical system, but we recognise absolutely the importance of that and having a, a, a diverse a diverse group to be able to bring bringing that diversity of thought and experience, which allows proper challenge. And you talk about the moral component for us, that's absolutely critical to what we call our, our fighting power, our operational effectiveness, yes. underpinning, as you know, the physical and the conceptual component. But you also touched on servant leadership as, as well, which again is very much at the heart of our leadership philosophy um, and actually plays to the, uh, the the motto serve to lead here at the Royal Military Academy Sanders, all, albeit it's applicable to to all ranks. And, and on that, when you look at society more broadly, do you think our current political and economic system is eroding the prevalence of, of service and servant leadership in our society? And can leaders in the private sector be, be altruistic when arguably the most important output is shareholder profit? If you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I'd have said yes and said that servant leadership was an endangered species. I would say now it's making a comeback. I think that's partly COVID. It's partly climate change and the environmental crisis, where people more and more are recognizing that the problems we're facing are well beyond any single organization. And therefore, a certain humility is necessary. And it happens in every organization. And we're just launching a fresh vision for the Church of England with three, uh, three key words, uh, of which two of the most important are humbler and bolder. And the third one is simpler. And servant leadership does not mean servile leadership. It means that you are a catalyst, you're a permission giver, where you see skills, you back them. You're not afraid to have people around you who are cleverer than you are. Mm -hmm. uh, President Reagan set the pattern of that. And you don't feel the need for people to treat you with deference. Respect for office is one thing. Deference is a very dangerous process. So our biggest mistakes in the last 30 years in the Church of England come from a culture of deference. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, we have a number of conversations here and it's come up in other podcasts as well, the importance of humility in leaders. And I can't think of one credible leader that I know that hasn't, had, hasn't got humility, such an important characteristic. I think, I think that's right. And the other thing I would say about servant leadership is it's people-centered. Mm -hmm. It's not task-focused principally. That's not to say, particularly in, in your job, that you don't take risks, very big risks, which go as far as costing people their lives. But you remain conscious that it's people you're working with. I think if you go back to the First World War, 
task focused became the thing and you know the the you could lose 10,000 people in a day and had you achieved your objective um i'm very struck by the number of senior leaders i know nowadays who recognize that if they don't care for their people they can't ask them to do tough things mm -hmm. absolutely yeah i mean the the army i couldn't agree more the army is a, a people organization and leadership is intrinsically a human endeavor um, yes i think that's absolutely right my grandfather was a uh, was an army officer uh, lieutenant colonel uh, cavalry regiment in india he served in both world wars at Galipsian places and um, he always used to mutter when we came in from a day he'd say i was always taught uh you know if we'd come out for a walk and and everyone was cold and wet and the and you know the dog his dog was cold and wet and so on he'd say horses men self yep yep <laughs> now i don't know how that works nowadays because you wouldn't have quite so many with horses but um you it, it i learned a lot from that absolutely that's that's the heart of servant leadership isn't it yourself comes last yeah if I can turn you to your role as a strategic leader now, um, um, as, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, you are Primus Interparis, a first among equals in respect of your fellow archbishops around the world, and therefore de facto head of the Anglican Church worldwide. You've been quoted as saying that the first duty of the Archbishop of Canterbury is to be alongside your archbishops, and particularly those serving in, in war-torn countries and facing some yes. significant challenges. And I know, as an example, you've spoken about Archbishop Araman, South Sudan. How as a strategic leader then do you support your fellow archbishops and how do you how do you lead and support effectively from such distance? Well, it's been very, very difficult the last 12 months, particularly as in many of these places, uh, internet communication, particularly in war zones, is, is really difficult or simply non-existent. Before that, in our first 20 months, in my first 20 months in post, my wife and I visited every single archbishop around the world, 39 provinces around the world, just briefly to spend time in their house, to listen to them, uh, to try and gauge how they were coping with what they had to face. The vast majority of Anglicans are in places of extreme poverty and half of them are in places of significant conflict or persecution. So we went to all kinds of places and we were very clear we went where they were where they were rather than asking them to come to where we were. And I think that's a key thing. You've got to be alongside. You've got to be responsible about it. I've been trans one place I've been trying to get to for years, and each time I've tried to get their security information locally has said that someone was planning a, an attack if I went. And whatever one thinks about that personally, it will lead to other people getting hurt. And you have to say, is this worth doing that? That's what I mean by being people rather than task focused. And a servant leader doesn't put themselves at risk in a way that damages the overall cause. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if it's quite right to lead from the front but if something goes wrong you better have a plan b that doesn't include you <laughs> 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 and someone else better know about it 
Um, so how have I done it? We've used modern technology very effectively. WhatsApp groups have been have absolutely transformed our relationships around the world. We have a Archbishop's WhatsApp, and they uh, and we are in contact literally daily, and that's been really good. And as soon as I can, I will be going back to some of the most complicated areas and seeking just to be alongside again and with them because that's how you show you care and tragically particularly one of the people I worked with a wonderful wonderful bishop in eastern DRC has died during the year so I won't be able to go back with him but all the more reason to go back go to his grave and show his people that I that I mourn in grief for him. Mm. I struck by your the first element of your answer there where you're effectively talking about knowing your people clearly the, the methodologies of communication and engaging with your your people may change because of certainly in, in in the current climate the various challenges that we all face but ultimately it's about knowing your people which i think you've highlighted it, really well yeah i think i think it is and again you see that in the best leaders don't you when you read about them they're very good at assessing and not in a judgmental sense, but just simply saying, okay, this person's really good in this area, but probably don't want to put him in that area. Yeah, yeah. If we move on to um, to trust, mm. in recent years, there's been a, a real rise in popularism and arguably polar, polarization of our society as well. And through social media and events such as Brexit, they've highlighted some corners of our society may have lost trust in our traditional institutions and our and our ways of life. I think it's a very uh, current issue. How important is trust to you as a leader and indeed to wider society? Oof. That is, uh, I'm still thinking about this. We had a long talk about this one last week. It's a huge, huge question. Excuse me for a moment on a bit of sort of philosophy that the culture in which we live has moved from much more hierarchical, top-down, socially stratified culture to a culture of a culture of suspicion. Most people ask themselves when someone's taking authority, what right do they have to give orders? And can I what is their real motivation? There's a sort of sense of what's in it for them. And that is deeply embedded in culture today. Um, it's known as the hermeneutic of suspicion. It comes from a group of philosophers, modernist, postmodernist, hypermodernist philosophers, who basically see everything as a, a matter of the exercise of power. And that seems to me to be fatally corroding our capacity to do good in the world over time. And I really mean that with the strength of those words, fatally corroding. It's not we're going to collapse tomorrow. But one of the things I battle with is, you know, with politicians, we all disagree with politicians on numerous things. But my experience is when you talk to them in private, they may be even the ones that are capable of hiding behind a corkscrew. At some point in their lives, there is still a deep commitment to something good mm. but they will also have their flaws and failings and we have a society where trust 
if we see one thing wrong in someone, we assume everything's wrong. Yes. Now, look at any of your senior officers in the armed forces. Look at even some of your most brilliant, now retired generals, like Rupert Smith, for instance, his, his um, extraordinary book on, on, uh, on war. Mm -hmm. Utility of force, yeah. I, I've met him. I've had long conversations. I'm fascinating man. He wouldn't say he was perfect. So do we say that everything that he did is wrong? Trust is essential. For me, it starts with trusting God. And we are trying in the church to build trust. Because until we can do that, it's very difficult to talk about it in society. And the more extreme the circumstances, the more trust matters. One of the good signs in the last year is actually in the first lockdown, particularly people began to work together much more. There was more trust in one another. But one of the key things in the work I do on mediation and reconciliation is to try and train people that when they're listening to those they disagree with, they assume the best intention and not the worst intention mm -hmm. to replace that hermeneutic of suspicion, that sense of what are they really up to? What are they trying to get over me with listening carefully to what they're saying? And if we are to do that, it's a soft power thing. And we have to build relationships to build that soft power. And that will require our sacrifice, not always seeking the credit. It is consciously to put aside the desire the lust for power, as Nietzsche called it, constantly not to manipulate. Transparency is the only way in which we can mend those tears in our social fabric. And specifically the role of the church in that. What, 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 what is the role of the church and faith leaders more broadly in, in mending some of the divisions you say in the social fabric? Well, we're working very hard on that. And the biggest way we're working is using the convening power of the church to bring together vast numbers of uh, groups of people, high, low, and middle, and enable them to meet and work commonly on projects together. Trust is one of the things we see in mistrust is you see it most of all in very enclosed societies or groups, conspiracy theory groups. And the way you break out of that you can't persuade them. There's a story I heard recently of two political supporters of a particular politician who's recently stepped down, and they both die in January, late January, and they go to, uh, they arrive at the pearly gates, God meets them, says, my children, what can I do to welcome you in? One of them says, how much did Mr. Trump really win the election by, and how was it fiddled? And God looks very sad and says, my children, I must tell you that President Biden won the election in reality. And the two men look at each other and one says to the other, this conspiracy goes much higher than I ever imagined. <laughs> now, the point about that is it just the underlying, the bite to that is conspiracy, the inward looking mistrust. You can't talk people out of it. Mm. You get out of it by looking outwards, by a common objective that you can share together. Not by circling the wagons, but by breaking the circle of the wagons and starting on 
where you want to go. So it's vision and faith leaders. That's one of the key ways we work in the Church of England and everything from the local community to the national is say, what kind of country do we want? Or at the local, when I in parish ministry, you say, what do we want to do about this problem in the parish? How do we deal with, in my place, it was uh, bunches of, of young people hanging around with nothing to do. How do we build relationship and give them some objectives in life? You, you talk about um, transparency there, and I guess with transparency comes accountability as well. Um, <laughs> yes. um, and, and, and I know you've spoken about this before, certainly in the finance industry, which is where I'd like to, to turn us to next. <clears throat> and in your role as uh, on the Banking Standards Commission, which I understand you've been on that commission since 2013, is that right? Uh, 2012, I think it was. 2012. Yeah. Uh, and you highlighted the prevalence of a, of a toxic culture and elements of, of willful blindness in certain financial services during the build-up to the, to the 2009 financial crisis. Senior leaders deliberately turned in a blind eye to avoid accountability in a culture where business values overtook arguably a basic uh, intrinsic human ethics. That's so, exactly right. So sorry, the question, yeah. Well, I was going to ask, what has the financial industry, industry learned from this and what has changed or not? And what has driven that change? Again, funnily enough, last week, I'd have said they've learned quite a lot about transparency and accountability for power. A conversation I had with a very senior executive in one of the uh, big, really powerful banks, and not an English bank, last week. He said, yeah, that was true until about 2016, but the bureaucracy that's come in now is obscuring that transparency because the more bureaucracy you have, the more transparency becomes a box-sticking exercise. Mm -hmm. What drove the change at the time was saying, for example, that the top two or three people in a major bank division or at the top of the company pleading ignorance of something going wrong would not be an excuse to a criminal charge of negligence and uh, failing to run the company properly. You had no excuse for not knowing. And what I've learned from making really bad mistakes over time in two particular jobs I was in is you have to learn to listen to your gut feel. If you feel something's wrong, mention it, even if you can't be precise about it. I'll quite often say here, when we're looking at a particular area, I'm just not sure about this. I can't tell you why I'm not sure. I'm uncomfortable. And we then sort of unpack it. And sometimes the discomfort goes away. Other times people say, uh, at the end of the conversation, we all realize we'd missed something. We'd conned ourselves into ignoring a risk. Some risks are so big that you sort of think, oh, I can't deal with that. It's t you put TDI next to it, too difficult, ignore. And it's very often the what if. What if this doesn't go right? What do we do then? Oh, we've, we're really up the creek at that point. So you pay no attention. And that does go wrong and you haven't got a backup. So transparency in leadership must mean saying when you don't know or when you're just simply uncomfortable with something. Mm -hmm. Not nervous. You take a big decision. You're nervous about the outcome. That's human. But when something deep within you says, we haven't quite got this right. I can't pin it down. We haven't quite got it right. 
Yeah, we often say if you think something's wrong, quite often it something is wrong. That's yeah. precisely it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I guess it's about being honest with yourself, isn't it? And taking the right action to to at least investigate, make sure that um, you paid it due diligence. Because a whole one of the definitions of a committee is a group of people who make a decision that every single person in the group thinks is the wrong decision. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so again, more broadly, do you think as a society we're, we're getting better at holding senior leaders to account for ethical failings? Uh, no, I don't. I think we're better at holding people to account, but we've given up on forgiveness and on balance. So as I was saying a few minutes ago, if someone's not good in one area or does something wrong, we dismiss them completely, mm. which means that the only people you can employ in a senior leadership role is going to be the Archangel Gabriel, and he's already got a job. And you've got to say leaders are human. Yeah. And the Christian understanding of being human is you are fallible. Mm -hmm. And that's why issues of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of recompense, restoration are absolutely essential. If you want to look at a leadership example that is quite dramatic, you look at that of, of Jesus himself. He picks 12 followers. One betrays him, 11 run away. Was he a bad leader? Was he bad at picking his top people? You could argue that he was, except that within three years, they were turning the most powerful empire in the world upside down because something had happened. He saw what could be. And leadership, the best leadership, and I've mentioned it before in this podcast, but I think someone like Slim with the 14th Army, he not only saw a defeated army, but he saw how it could be a victorious army. Mm. I can't help thinking, based on what you said there, yeah, how quick we are to judge in society today, and often off very little or incomplete, and in some instances, incorrect information as well. And I think it's a, um, a trend that's only getting worse, unfortunately, which doesn't help. I think that's right, and made worse by social media. Absolutely. Absolutely. If we can come back to the notion of challenge and, and, and in um, that discussion, we talked about the importance of diversity and you've been instrumental in changing the Church of England's policy and view on the consecration of, of women as bishops as a, as a good example of, of creating diversity within the church. How challenging was driving this institutional change? Oh, wasn't difficult. Took about 35 years. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was very fortunate. I stood on other people's shoulders. I won't claim the credit for that. We got to the point, uh, the proposal to ordain women as bishops was defeated in the sort of Church of England Parliament, known as the General Synod, in November 2012, about a week after I was nominated. Uh, my appointment this job was announced, but before I took over. And the shock of the defeat of that, even for those who were against it, was so great that actually it wasn't that difficult. It was a case of taking a step back and saying, okay, that didn't work. How can we make this simpler and fairer and care for those who disagree? So it was people-driven. We sought to do the right thing, but we sought to do it in a way that kept our focus that those who disagreed were not discounted, discarded. And 
we went ahead. And then having gone ahead, we particularly in our, we launched around the same time a senior leadership development program and a very good one, absolutely superb. And we made sure that people going into that were much more diverse than the existing senior leadership. So the people now who have been through that course, sort of like staff college or whatever, or a bit more than that probably, the people who've been through that are now a very diverse bunch. So we've got a much deeper and wider pool to fish from for our appointments to senior leadership. And I guess what we're talking about there is cultural change, isn't it? I was just wondering, reflecting there as you were speaking, how as a leader of the Anglican Church, you balance the tension between remaining true to the church's foundation of foundational principles, beliefs and traditions whilst uh, whilst evolving to remain relevant to the society which you serve? Yeah, um, that is a constant debate and it's a pretty big de- debate at the moment around the issue of human sexuality, which is again a cultural, uh, you know, it, it, culture of the nation has changed absolutely dramatically in the last 20 years on that. And I think you have to take it in two steps. What is the core of what you're about? In our case, what is the core message that, and the core life that we consider to be a good and holy and right life serving God through your whole life for lay people and for ordained people? And to what extent you then stand back, and we've just done two and a half years' work on this, you stand back and say, to what extent is that culturally driven how do we interpret what is genuinely what we feel is indispensable and what is a secondary issue? And that's where you get the arguments. And then the culture change is something that takes a huge amount of time and is a real process of forming relationships. One of the big culture changes that we're finding at the moment is from the senior leadership program I mentioned a while ago. It brings people from all the different bits of the church who probably stayed in. The church is very tribal, quite unlike the army, I'm sure. I'm sure that uh, (laughs) cavalry, engineers, infantry, special forces, they all mix happily. None (laughs) thinks they're any better than any of the others. Um, Navy, army, air force, you know. Um, One thing. One team, one team, yes. (laughs) Well, we do have very distinct tribes. The senior leadership program, people have found themselves working with those of very different theological and uh, church tradition streams than anything they've met before. And they've really grown to like each other. And that is changing the culture quite quickly among them. And because they're leaders, that, that will spread. But culture change starts with relationship change. Mm. You, it's not top down. It's got to be something that goes into the heart. And it's, you would know from, from the armed services, it's unbelievably difficult. Uh, you brought up the point of sexuality. Is, is that an evolving position within the church? Uh, depends which bit. Not around the world. Uh, some cultures are more conservative than others. In the United States, it certainly has evolved very significantly. In England, we're in the midst of the discussions, and there are very strong feelings. Absolutely. I wonder if I'll turn to to risk the professional head of our army, Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mark Carton-Smith. 
has um, articulated in a previous podcast the imperative for our leaders to take risk. I know this has synergies with your views on the Church of England's risk appetite and the dangers of playing it safe. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about this. What is the Church of England's risk appetite and, and where would you like to take it? It comes back to culture. Historically, our risk appetite has been quite low, though we've always had idiosyncratic leaders, eccentric leaders who were brilliant. Uh, people like George Bell, who during the Second World War went to Sweden several times, huge risk to his own life and huge risk to church's reputation, negotiating with the anti-Nazi underground coming up from Germany. Now, that was highly controversial. He also spoke out against carpet bombing of civilian areas. And, you know, I could pick others. I mean, he's one of the great stars. But generally speaking, the risk appetite's been low. And part of that has been there's been a blame culture. If the risk goes wrong, you're to blame. And, you know, there's not much of a way back sometimes. I, uh, my non-church background in the oil industry, it was, you know, you, you drill holes in the ground at $5 million a piece in the 70s, and they don't produce anything. And, and you can drill 30 of them before you hit something, and that's 150 million bucks, and that's quite serious money. So risk, we used to risk everything, and then you're offshore, you're sitting on a platform surrounded by highly volatile liquids and gases. Risk management is at the heart of it. So we are trying to be more willing to take risks that don't pay off and the, to take risks that we hope will pay off, but sometimes don't pay off. And I can think of one or two things we've done in the last few years, which simply haven't worked. We tried to change uh, the rules on particularly important part of church life, and it was voted down. We tried to go very quickly through the issue on sexuality. That was a risk. It was voted down. You know, we took risks and they didn't, didn't pay off. And I try with my colleagues and set an example of when it doesn't pay off, you say, okay, you don't pretend. This is transparency again. If it went wrong, don't say it went right. It just didn't go right in the way we hoped it would. Mm. You know, go back in history, you know, Dunkirk was a very successful operation. And do you remember Churchill in the House of Commons saying wars are not won by evacuations? That's leadership transparency. It was a great success for what it was trying to do was to get the British Expeditionary Force out of France intact, much better than anyone expected. But it's not what we actually wanted. Mm. What we wanted was to stay there and win. And Churchill was absolutely straightforward about that. So the culture to taking risk has to be a culture that says you learn from mistakes and except in egregious and reckless and stupid risks, you learn from mistakes and you're not a blame culture. And it goes back to that point of humility, doesn't it? Yes. Acknowledging that you, you failed or acknowledging that things have gone wrong, but also the importance of, of learning from that so you come back stronger. Exactly, exactly. I did an interview a year ago and came out of it and, and the comms people said, oh, it's a very good Archbishop. I said, no, it wasn't. That did not go well. Let's sit down and work out why it didn't go well. Mm. 
And indeed, when, when it was published, it hadn't gone well. They were trying to encourage me because they could see I felt it didn't go well. I felt much more encouraged when I knew why it didn't go well and I could do better next time. Well, hopefully we're not in that bracket today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> certainly not from this end. Turning turn in specifically to the, to the church and, um, and the British Army, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about your role and about the serving British Army clergy and what role the Bishop of the Forces, Bishop Tim Thornton, plays in supporting you and the Royal Army Chaplains Department. I'm what's called the ordinary to the Anglican chaplain serving in the army, which means that I set the rules for them and I authorise them. As clergy, the army sets the rules for them as serving soldiers. Mm -hmm. And in order that that's done properly, we appoint a bishop to the forces. I have to say I'm, I'm ordinary to the armed services generally, not just to the army, so it includes the uh, Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. And it is, for me, it is one of the most, the greatest privileges of this role. It's, it's the bit I really thoroughly enjoy. I think, it, I think they're such a remarkable bunch. People, both the chaplains and the serving military in all three services. The Bishop to the Forces, uh, there are all, all told 160, 180 clergy as chaplains in the different forces and the bishop of the forces acts as their bishop he recruits uh, he interviews people who are going to be candidates he uh, cares pastorally he administers the discipline and he ensures that i meet regularly with the uh, the three archdeacons the senior people who go under different names chaplain general chaplain to the fleet chaplain to the raf that i meet regularly with them we try and make sure they have a high profile in, in the Church of England generally. And I've tried to get much more involved. So I have an annual day where we bring them together. Um, normally they'd come here, but this year, of course, they couldn't. So we had to do it online. And from time to time, as often as I can, I go out and spend time with them uh, on a ship or on an exercise on Salisbury Plain or... Um, you know, an RAF station, whatever it happens to be. And I always come away having learned far more than I uh, contributed. And how important is having a person of faith working alongside military leaders? I just wondered whether there's a tension between Christianity and our role in the profession of arms, particularly in the ethics of potentially taking life on behalf of the, of the nation. Well, you get different views from different people. I'm sure there are some people in the army who think, God doesn't exist and the chaplain's waste of space. But the experience I get is on the whole that our chaplains are hugely valued. I'll tell you, well, there's one anecdote from someone who's now retired from the army who was a senior chaplain and he was um, out in Afghanistan. He did a couple of tours in Afghanistan. And one of the senior NCOs in the uh, unit he was with came to see him, very experienced, very senior soldier, and said, I need to talk to you, Padre, and they had a chat. And at the end, my friend said, well, you know, I'm slightly, I'm very, it's been a good conversation. I'm really pleased to talk to you, but why do you come and see me? Because I know you're not a believer. And the man said, you're the only person who is someone who thinks beyond what we're doing day-to-day -day, thinks whose job I mean everyone else did think about the ethics actually 
but whose job is to do that. He said, who's professionally neutral between all of us and who's never killed anybody. Mm. And because, as you know, chaplains don't carry arms Mm -hmm. uh, in the British Army. And that last point, he said, you know, it was fast. They went on to have a much longer conversation later. And this NCO said, I believe what I do is right and is honorable and proper. I'm translating from and deleting certain expletives. But he said, <laughs> um, he said, but there is something about taking a human life. And even if you know it's the right thing to do, deep down you feel the world would be a better place if it wasn't necessary for people to take other people's lives Mm. violently. And I think there are the ethics. And I think the presence of chaplains uh, helps give permission to think deeply about the ethics for everyone in the army. It says that this really matters. Spirituality matters. Spiritual life, eternal things matter. And ethics really matters. There is someone who's just by being there says there are other things. We have to think about why we're doing this. One of the things I really appreciate about the British Army is that you care deeply about right and wrong. Absolutely. And I am sure that if there was there were orders to do something that was completely wrong, as, for instance, the German army had in 1941 when they invaded Russia, and they were told to slaughter whole villages. I have no doubt that there are a lot of people in the army who said, I'm not going to obey that order. That is an army order I cannot go with. It's the wrong thing to do, not out of fear of the international court, but because deep down they knew it was wrong. Mm -hmm. And we must have ways in the army that say, and in all the services, that say thinking about right of wrong is not only permitted, it's essential. And so we have someone there who's professionally doing it. I mean, you, you'll be aware, Archbishop, how central our values and standards are to the way... Absolutely, you, I am, deeply. And that sits at the, at the heart of our organisation and indeed our leadership, and we practice values-based leadership and, and the role of our our padres and indeed all our faith leaders are absolutely critical to, to that. And I think if I can add from a personal perspective, whether you're a person of faith or, or no faith, um, having our faith leaders as part of, uh, of the army is, is critical. They are highly valued and, and they're, not, they're not just there for the pastoral care, albeit that's extremely important, but they are very much part of the moral fabric of, our, of the British army. Um, so a critical role, critical role. Time is against us. I wondered, uh, Archbishop, if I could um, finish on a slightly lighter touch with some quick-fire questions. Yeah. Um, who's the best leader you've ever worked with and why? I hadn't answered this, and now I'm just thinking again. I think the best leader I ever worked with, probably the chief executive at the company where I worked. But it's really difficult question to answer because I've worked with brilliant people since, but not with them necessarily as leaders, though sometimes. I think the other one who really comes to mind is this man in northeast Congo who died of COVID last July, whose sheer courage and humility always left you inspired whenever you spoke to him. His name was Desiree Mukunaba. Fantastic. 
most enjoyable leadership position you've ever held? This one. Most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? Don't be afraid to say you're wrong or that you don't know. And with hindsight, what would you tell a young Justin Welby straight out of Cambridge University about leadership? I would say it's about working with people, not working over them. And finally, what is your biggest leadership challenge in the future? Mobilising the Anglican communion of 80 million around the world speaking 2,000 languages, most of them very poor, to be an effective force for peace building and improvement of the community while being passionate about their relationship with God. That is the challenge. Archbishop, it's been an absolute privilege and honour to speak to you today. Um, a thoroughly enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much, Langley and Jane. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's a real privilege to speak to you. Well, what a fascinating conversation with so much packed into such a short period of time. I was struck, perhaps unsurprisingly, earlier on in the conversation when the Archbishop highlighted the importance of the moral component of leadership. When he argued that people need to believe that what they are doing is for a good cause and that they are being well led. He said that leaders need to have the confidence to be challenged. Challenge, he argues, is indispensable to good leadership. He also said the best leaders are those who espouse servant leadership. Servant leaders, he argues, are those that act as catalysts, who give permission, who back the key skills in others, who are not afraid to have people who are cleverer than they are on the team, and who don't feel the need for people to treat them with deference. Respect for office, yes, but not deference. And he argued that some of the biggest mistakes made in the Church of England over the last 30 years are due to cultural deference. He also highlighted the importance of people in leadership. And if you don't care for your people, you can't ask them to do tough things in tough times. And of course, to care for your people, you've got to know them and know them in context. And I thought it was a wonderful example the Archbishop gave when he talked about visiting 39 archbishops around the world, how he got to know them personally and within their own context. We also talked about the importance of trust and the prevalence, as he described, of the hermeneutics of suspicion in what is deemed to be an increasingly judgmental society, where he said, and I quote, it is fatally corroding our ability to do good in the world, and the prevalence for whereby if people see something wrong in others, they think that everything is wrong. But the reality is that no one and not everything is perfect. And the more extreme the circumstances, the greater the importance of trust. And therefore, we need to assume the best in people, not the worst. We also talked about accountability, very much connected with trust. And if you feel something is not quite right, the chances are it probably isn't. So don't put it into the all too difficult and ignore bracket. Transparency is about saying you don't know or that you're not comfortable. The Archbishop gave an interesting perspective whereby across society, we are holding people to account, but we've lost the notion of forgiveness and balance. And as leaders, we're all human. And I think he's got a really valid point here because there are very few fundamentally bad leaders or bad people in positions of authority. They're people who make mistakes, but it doesn't mean they are fundamentally flawed in their approach. We also talked about the challenges of driving cultural change, which is an issue that many organizations to continue to grapple with in light of societal changes, and is a strategic level issue for the army at this time. Cultural change, of course, he says, starts with a relationship change. And he also talked about the importance of taking risk, but to do so knowingly. And this is something of the subject that a number of our guests in previous podcasts have also talked about. 
but taking risk underpinned by leadership transparency. The culture of risk is about learning from mistakes when things do go wrong and avoiding the blame culture, which we can be susceptible to. A fascinating conversation with a highly credible and respected leader who leads by example, with clear purpose, high moral integrity, and more than a healthy dose of humility. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.